another one of Jesus' little unexpected stories. A judge who neither fears God nor respects man, a powerless widow who has not given up, and an unlikely outcome, seemingly for all the wrong reasons. What are we meant to learn here? Widows are interesting figures in uh, the Bible. They are probably the icon of the least powerful in the community. See, we're accustomed to the powerful getting their way, aren't we? Uh, Those who have money or education or good connections, it's so much the air that we breathe these days that we're no longer surprised to see ex-government ministers move into wealthy uh, consulting roles or industry lobbying roles, those sorts of things, or people who have lots of resources be treated differently to those who are on the fringes. None of that is surprising to us. We understand that the powerful are used to getting what they want, getting their own way. But the figure of the widow is the least powerful person in the community. Along with the orphan, the widow is virtually powerless in the societies described in the Bible. They cannot make anyone do anything. There is no statute of rights that insists they be treated fairly or even listened to. They survive by the mercy of the community. They are the recipients of charity. And the scripture directs their deliberate care precisely because nothing and no one else does. They are utterly dependent. It's interesting to think who would that be the equivalent of that today in our society because you know a lot of widows and so forth do okay in our society today. Um, you might think of the homeless but even they have advocacy groups to look after them. Who is it that's so voiceless and almost invisible in the society? And interestingly um, Ian mentioned a group the other day that he was aware of and that is the grandmothers of people who come from non-English speaking backgrounds and the families here and then they bring their grandmother or so forth over and these people don't have language, they're at an age where it's very difficult for them to learn the language, they don't have connections anywhere and they sit at home all day on their own waiting for their family to return from school or work or whatever it might be. They're almost invisible. No influence, no political clout, pretty much forgotten or never thought about in the first place. So there are people always on the fringes of a a society that are almost powerless and invisible and this widow is the archetype of that sort of person. But there is a power There's a power that is not given to status. It's not dependent on education or how much money you have. It lives regardless of the rules of the society or the connections you might have in the community. And it is the power of hope. This power cannot be conjured or manufactured. You cannot will it into being in a funny kind of way. It lives within the heart of the believer It is a confidence in something that is bigger than us. Something that lives larger than not just me and not just 
you and me and us, but even larger than the, the whole society of the world in a sense. Something that holds us and shapes us and our sense of what ultimate reality is. And the thing about hope is it transforms your experience. So, for example, the widow in this story could have fallen into despair. She could have tried to get her justice and come up against the brick wall and eventually gone, well, it's never going to happen, I'm doomed. And you don't have to walk far to find people who experience that. And it's an understandable kind of reaction. Her circumstances might have intimidated her into silence. She could have given up and disappeared into the mass of people who are squashed by an uncaring world. None of that would be surprising, right? Instead, something irrepressible came forth from this powerless widow. Her strategy was not complicated. One does not get a sense that it was overly thought through or calculated in her actions. It was simply that in her powerlessness, her abiding hope had to find an outlet. So she went to the only place that could possibly offer an, a result and she just kept going back. She was held by this hope and persevered. And then we get this judge. Fascinating character, right? I mean, Jesus is telling a story. It's not two actual people. But could you make a more despicable character, really? Doesn't care about justice, doesn't fear God, doesn't care about man. None of that seems to be an issue for him. Jesus deliberately paints the portrait of the worst possible of judges. This person has all power but offers no hope. And he had no interest in anyone who might have hope. He was totally self-absorbed, a virtual island unto himself, untouched and untouchable. He does not give a rat's about this widow or anyone else. And this is perhaps the most frightening form of state apparatus we could encounter. All power, no care. Functioning essentially for the benefit of the functionary alone and not doing anything much for anyone else. And again, not difficult to find in today's world. Uh, I put it to you that anyone who's had any engagement with Centrelink might know something about this. Uh, too often the poor public servants who occupy the seats at the Centrelink offices end up functioning as part of a granite, impenetrable bureaucracy. They've learnt long ago there is precious little they can do to help poor individuals who present themselves to them and they have become fatigued and trained themselves not to care too much because of their compassion fatigue. An interesting dynamic happens here. The self-preservation equation shifts again when the person doesn't give up. Even this corrupt and antisocial judge will be moved to act by, the powerless, by this powerless widow because she's so persistent. Not because he cares about the widow, not because he has any interest in justice, but simply to get her off his case purely as an act of self-preservation to avoid being hassled to utter distraction. Now you might say, well that's not a very good picture. Is this supposed to be 
God we're talking about here? And the answer is no. This is a very common thing the Hebrews did. It was an argument by comparison. So God will do so much more. So if even this corrupt judge does this, our God who we know is engaged and caring and very much interested in justice will do so much more. The argument is from comparison, often contrast and comparison. If a completely unjust will be moved by the actions of persistent cries, we can be absolutely certain that an engaged, interested, caring, just God will certainly be moved by the cries of God's people. How can we doubt that God will bring about that outcome if we continue to cry out? So these certainties are solid. There's a logic here that is kind of straightforward. The faithful continue to call forth the kingdom. We can't help it. We believe in it. It's a hope that bubbles up within us. And God, the God they cry to will not fail to respond. For Jesus' original audience, whose history could easily have challenged this very simplistic reading of this truth, Uh, There was no doubt about either of these two parts. They knew the faithful would continue to cry out and they knew that God would answer. There was no debate required and no debate entered into. But faith is not logical and it's not just a math equation, is it? I'm not sure that we hold to the same rock-solid certainties in our day. We've been through a lot in the last 2,000 years that have undermined maybe our confidence in a just God How do we understand the so-called Christian mission of the Crusades, for example, in the Middle Ages, who claimed to have the imprimatur of God and did such unspeakably cruel things? How could my Jewish father, fleeing his German homeland, possibly believe in a God who cared for his people in the face of seeing so many dragged off and murdered? How do I trust in a God who, despite years of prayer, did not enable me or Joe in our relationship to fall pregnant, even though we did cry out persistently. Yet it remains true that the faithful continue to call forth the kingdom into being. Because even in the face of things that don't happen in the way that you expect them to, the hope doesn't die The faithful are possessed of a hope that is bigger than simply what I might want to receive. It is the hope of God's kingdom rule of love and grace and truth. And that justice of God is coming. Despite what we might see to the contrary, the kingdom is coming. It is conceived in the hearts of the faithful as mysteriously as the baby Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb, however you might like to understand that. It begins as a shift in what is held as most important and it blossoms into the way we regard and treat one another, finding expression in community that fosters life for all but not at the expense of any. I was at breakfast yesterday morning down here outside Tom and Lily's with the the group that gather. It's a fantastic experience. Come along sometime, you'll be welcomed. Uh, A few of us were bemoaning the failure of the political leadership across the globe at the moment and it's really easy to become cynical and detached and think that we're not like them, you know, they're just hopeless but we're we're not like them, but actually we're just 
just as easily like them, aren't we? And the challenge for us is to live an alternate story in our lives, not to be so caught up with the same competition and chasing after the same kinds of things that the rest of the world is, but to live an alternate vision in which it's not about getting what we can get for ourselves, but offering what we have to offer as our focus. And then we observed the community around us. We were sitting there talking and I just stopped for a moment and said, you know what, the antidote to cynicism and detachment is this. It's engagement with people. It's this. It's you people, the way we gather together and see each other and unwittingly we begin to care about each other and we can't become cynical or detached because we are each other. We belong to one another. And that becomes an ever-expanding thing, just like out at Tom and Lil's, where more people turn up and another table comes out. And then questions like, Dave, can you get some trestle tables from the church? Because there's more people coming. Yeah, I'll get some tables and chairs. And the table can get bigger and bigger. Just like here at the Mustard Seed, as we invite people into our events and things like that, the table gets bigger. So what does your life indicate that you believe in? What is the hope that bubbles up inside of you that you're building your life on? Is it the reality that the kingdom of God is coming? Because it's a tough one to maintain, isn't it? Until the kingdom arrives in all its fullness, we mainly experience it or often experience it as an absence. And then there's moments when you taste it and things happen and you go, oh, that was fabulous. God was really in the mix. Yet there remains these two certainties. Those who put their trust in God call forth the kingdom and God will not fail to respond. The question is, do we have the faith to trust that that is so? Let us pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your amazing grace. Your love that transforms us and puts this hope within us that comes forth in all sorts of ways and enables us to be not just cynical and detached but to become vulnerable and connected and to love and to care and to be loved and cared for. We thank you that your kingdom is coming. You are faithful and respond and we put our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.